Let me just tell you this morning. First of all, it's great to have everybody with us. Great to be able to worship together and just to be able to celebrate the Lord's presence. I want you to know today that the Lord wants more for you than to just live, to make money, and to die. Instead, he has great plans for you that will likely involve those three things. You will live, you will make money, and you will die. But the Lord wants more for you today. In other words, you are here for a purpose, and everything you do in this lifetime will either help you to accomplish that purpose, or it will serve as a distraction to accomplishing that purpose. And what we all need to know is that God's plan will always be best for us. I was reading a passage this week from the Gospel of Mark, and this is not going to be my primary text this morning, but the Gospel of Mark chapter 14, where we see multiple people who had encountered Jesus, and they were now serving their created purpose. I know it's not the primary text, but it's very important, so I begin here. Listen to the passage this morning, as recorded in Mark 14, verse 3 through 9. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Obviously the primary character in that particular passage is Jesus, but there are two supporting characters that are worthy of note. The first is often overlooked. His name is Simon the leper. This is a curious title that is given to him as he has clearly had an encounter with Jesus Christ. In fact, most theologians believe that although this man is referred to as Simon the leper, a more appropriate title would have been Simon the former leper. This guy has been touched by Jesus and he's gone from being an unclean outcast, unable to be with anybody because leprosy was viewed as a contagious disease. He was completely separated from the rest of society to the point that he is now hosting a dinner party with Jesus. Similar to last week's message about Zacchaeus, this man has become a conduit being used to connect other people to the Messiah. He is no doubt fulfilling God's purpose and plan for his life. But then you have this other character. She's not actually mentioned, at least immediately, by name. Not in this gospel. Actually, in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, it also records this story, and in doing so, he identifies this lady as being Mary, the sister of both Martha and Lazarus. She, too, had an experience 
an encounter with Jesus Christ. Actually, she had multiple encounters with Jesus. But it wasn't her healing that was granted. Remember, Simon the leper, he was touched. He was physically changed. It wasn't her healing in this case. It was her brother, Lazarus, who received the healing. I'm sure that probably most everyone in here is familiar with that story as Lazarus was the one who had died, yet Jesus would raise him back to life. Can you imagine the debt of gratitude that she would have felt toward Jesus? Her brother was dead and today he is alive. You think she would have wanted to say thank you? You almost picture her wondering to herself about how she could ever appropriately give thanks for the great things that he has done. She likely wasn't well off, so she didn't have much to give. However, you almost picture her saying, but I do have that expensive perfume that I've been holding on to. So she runs home and she goes and she gets it. Not to put a couple of dabs on Jesus so that he smelled a little bit better, but to sacrificially pour out the entire contents of this alabaster jar upon Jesus' head. It actually says that she broke the jar. In other words, there was never any plan to put the rest back in the jar. Her goal was to give everything. I was reading this week about a kamikaze pilot who participated in 17 missions. If you didn't catch that, a kamikaze pilot should only have one mission. If he participated in 17 of them, it sounds like he wasn't all that committed at the first mission, nor the first 16 missions. Well, this woman was committed to giving everything that she had on her first mission. And I fear that the church across America is full of people who are flying kamikaze missions, but already have plans for the weekend. In other words, they're not fully committed to the mission of Jesus Christ. They're open to sacrifice, but just a little bit. Well, of course, Mary sacrifices her all. There would be those who would complain as a result of that act, but Jesus would not. In fact, Jesus defends her. He celebrates what she has done. She has extravagantly given, extravagantly given of herself for the purpose of bringing honor to the Lord. And then Jesus adds that her action serves to anoint Jesus for his burial, something that she probably had not even thought of because she didn't understand what was about to take place. Clearly, the disciples didn't either. The point is that she was fulfilling her purpose as one who had experienced an encounter with Jesus Christ. Well, when people begin to complain about this woman's actions, Jesus responds with a curious statement. You're thinking to yourself, if this isn't the sermon, how long is the sermon going to be today? Actually, it's okay. This, this is kind of setting the stage for it here. Listen to what Jesus said. She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. 
You will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Please note that Jesus is all about helping and healing the poor, and he expects that we will be too. But this is a unique occasion. Think about it. Jesus won't always be there. And of course, Jesus, we're nearing the end of his life. He expects that the people there will rejoice over his presence. While there will be times that he will choose humility over recognition, on this occasion, Jesus allows this woman the chance to appropriately honor the Messiah. And for me, as well as the watching audience at that dinner party, it begs the likely question, who is this man? This is a question that was probably asked often. It was asked by Jesus' disciples after he calmed the storm. It was asked by the crowd when he healed a lame man. It was asked by a Roman centurion at the cross, who upon seeing Jesus breathe his last, declared, truly this Man was the son of God. In a manner, the root of this question is about praise to the Lord. It is a recognition that he is greater than anything we have ever seen. And this question is basically more of a declaration saying, wow, this is not what we're used to. And it's good for us to know that it's always right to praise the Lord. Well, today's passage, again, addresses this question, who is this man? It is a passage that you'll become somewhat familiar with in the coming weeks, as it will take multiple weeks for us to cover all of it. It's still dealing with the Encounters with Jesus series that we've been looking at, but we're beginning to look at the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ as we approach Easter. If you want, I invite you to turn in your Bibles. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21, verses 6 through 11. Jesus is preparing for his grand entrance into Jerusalem. And the time of Passover is fast approaching. And many people are coming to Jerusalem for this special event. It was an annual event and often people came, but this time would be different. Of course, Jesus knows that this is about more than Passover. In fact, Passover, the actual event of Passover, was a precursor to what was about to take place. A little history lesson while you turn in your Bibles. The original Passover comes as a Jewish holiday used to celebrate God's protection and deliverance for God's people at the end of their captivity in Egypt. They had spent about 400 years as slaves in Egypt, and they pleaded that God would send a deliverer, that God would rescue them from their enslavement. Well, Moses becomes that deliverer. He became God's instrument to bring this deliverance, and the tool that Moses used was a series of plagues each one making life more miserable on their captors. But the last plague was definitely the most devastating of all the plagues. On a specific night, an angel of death would pass through the land of Egypt, causing every firstborn son to die. I don't have to cover every aspect of this, 
but I will say that there is a bit of poetic justice involved in this final plague. Remember that it was the Egyptian pharaoh who ordered Hebrew babies to be thrown into the Nile River in order to limit the population of the Israelite slaves. And now these are their children who will die. Anyways, back to this final plague. There was a way to avoid the effects of this plague. As this angel of death passed through the community, any household that had the blood of a lamb sprinkled on the doorpost was spared. The angel passed over, which is where we get the term Passover. And of course, this would be the final plague which would result in God's people being set free. In fact, the Egyptians are so ready for them to leave, they did not truly have to escape. But rather the Egyptians say, please leave, leave us alone. They would eventually change their mind and then pursue them for the sake of bringing them back. But the point is, the devastation was significant. In a similar manner, Jesus was about to become the sacrificial lamb whose blood would be shed in order to set all of humanity free from sin and death. We would no longer be captives to sin. We would be set free. So this is no ordinary Passover that is being celebrated. This would be the Passover that all of humanity had been looking for, even if they didn't realize what they were getting that time around. So Jesus sends his disciples on ahead of him with some very specific instructions. He's going to make his grand entrance in Jerusalem, but in order to do it right, He'll need an animal to ride on. Now, please note, Jesus had been many times through the streets of the city, but he didn't always come riding in on an animal. Often he walked in just like everyone else, but this would be different. Listen to the first part of this passage. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? That's the question of the day. Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You know, it's an interesting story of how Jesus ends up riding on a donkey. There are lessons for us even in the pre-story here. First, we see that the disciples were instructed where to go. They were instructed what they will see when they get there. And then what to say when they are asked about what they are doing. And of course, everything that they are instructed with, everything happens exactly the way Jesus tells them it will. If you'll remember, this is where I started this morning when I said, God's plan is always best. He knows what we will face. So we're always better off with his wisdom and his provision instead of trying to figure things out 
on our own. Anybody in here ever struggle with that? Where you try to do it on your own because you know in your mind what the right thing to do is. And so often we discover that there is a better way, doing it God's way. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Sometimes God's plan may not make perfect sense to us, but his way is always better than ours. It's like Gideon going into battle with 32,000 soldiers. That made sense to Gideon. It's what he wanted to do, but it didn't make sense to God. By the time Gideon actually leads his soldiers into battle against the enemy, God has whittled the troops down from 32,000 to 300 men. But that was more than enough because God's way is always the best way. There is another aspect of this triumphal entry that the people would have very easily recognized. It was not uncommon for a king or a conquering military commander to ride into town mounted upon some elegant, beautiful animal. This enabled the people to show honor to this great official while also allowing the conquering one to announce the victory that had been won. Well, Jesus riding in on a donkey would have brought with it a different type of recognition. He's not riding some stallion. He chooses a lowly donkey. It actually speaks to two things. First, it speaks to his humility. Although he deserves all the praise in the world, and he was greater than any king that had ever existed. He chose humility. So much so that he would find himself washing the feet of his disciples in the coming days. There would be times, in fact, I read a passage to you already. There would be times that Jesus would welcome the recognition. Remember when Mary poured out the alabaster jar. And she honored him and she celebrated him for who he was. There would be times that he would be recognized. Even in this story, as Jesus rides in on the donkey, people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means praise, Hosanna to the king. But it's also important for us to note that a king riding in on a donkey also had incredible value. There was a message that was associated with it. I mentioned that a conquering king would ride into town on a big, beautiful stallion. A king riding on a donkey also symbolized something. It symbolized one who was coming in peace. Well, this is the prince of peace. And although the coming week would present all kinds of unrest, the ultimate result would be the offer of peace for all of humanity. Jesus was very strategic with coming and riding on a donkey. He chose that animal because in many ways it represented the peace that God was making available to all of humanity for centuries to come. And I will add one last thought. Although symbolism is important, the type of animal is somewhat irrelevant. There, there's a message, I get it, 
but it really didn't matter what animal Jesus rode in on. His greatness is not dictated by the type of animal that he rode on. His greatness has already been on full display. He was about to accomplish far more than any military commander or king had ever done as Jesus would become the sacrifice for our sins, as he would pave the way for all of humanity to be made right with God. So back to our story. We see Jesus seated on a donkey and he's riding into town. And what a reception he would receive. Listen again to verses 8 and 9. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I told you that it wasn't about the animal on which he rode. His greatness had already been on full display for three three and a half years of ministry. And the response of the people is that they give him a royal welcome. People begin by taking off their own cloaks and they throw them down on the ground in front of him. This was an act of sacrifice. For us, we're somewhat spoiled. We've got closets full of cloaks. We may not call them cloaks. We've got jackets, we've got all kinds of layers that we can put on. On a day like today, when it was 30-something degrees this morning, some of y'all put on layers. Or just because you come to church, because sometimes it's warm in here and sometimes it's cold. But we've got plenty of layers that we can take one off and just throw it on the ground and it might be okay. For them to take off your cloaks and lay them on the ground where a horse, or in this case, a donkey and many other people might come through, you're basically saying, I give this up. I'm sacrificing this. People take off their own cloaks, throw them down in front of them. Others cut branches, and we're told in one of the other gospels that the type of branches that is used, they're palm branches. And they lay them across the road. We would compare this to them rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. It is an invitation, but it's also a statement of honor. Remember the second point that I'm making today. It's one that we've already talked about. It is the fact that God's praise is always right. In fact, they also praise him with their voices. They shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. The term Hosanna literally means praise or joy. But more than that, we see a declaration of who this man is. It's that question again, who is this man? He is labeled in this passage as the son of David. Now, this is a messianic title that reveals that he's not just some important figure. Later in the passage, he'll be referred to as a prophet, and that is true. But he doesn't come merely as a prophet. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. He is fulfilling a role that no other would have been able to do. This is the Messiah that all of humanity had been waiting for. 
In fact, 17 times throughout the scriptures, Jesus is referred to as the son of David. It is genealogically correct as both Mary and Joseph both come from the bloodline of David. I know that makes them distant cousins, but they were distant enough that it doesn't sound inappropriate. They both come from the bloodline of David. But it is also a reflection of God's promise to Israel that through David's descendants, a Messiah would come. And Jesus was the one who had been prophesied about so many centuries before. But there's more to this question of who is this man. In fact, each of the Gospels record the triumphal entry with each one including a few different details. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 19, we read about a stop that Jesus makes as this triumphal entry is taking place. As he approaches Jerusalem, it says in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. I told you one of the symbols of an individual riding into town on a donkey was that he was bringing peace. Yet as he weeps, he weeps because they do not recognize the peace that is available. Jesus stops and he weeps over this city. Perhaps that's because he already knows what will take place in the coming days. Perhaps that's because he understands that the same people who will shout, Hosanna to the son of David, will be crying out, crucify him within a few short days. Perhaps it's simply because he loved them so much and it broke his heart to see them walk a path of ignorance and regret. As parents, have you ever had your heart broken seeing the children that you love making decisions that do not honor the Lord? Do you weep over them? That's the heart that we see with Jesus here. You know, there's a beautiful truth within this. Jesus knows who will betray him. And instead of seeking vengeance upon them, he weeps over them. It's like when Peter was warned that he would betray Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. Peter responded that there's no way that he could ever do such a thing. He even declared that even if everyone else would turn away, he would be faithful. But Jesus knew what would happen. Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter. It's in the Gospel of John. Go back and look at it. Jesus never rebukes Peter for that. Instead, we're told that he prayed for Peter. I want you to know that God's heart is always for you. Every person in this room 
has likely denied Christ at some point. Maybe not with our words, but with our actions. Maybe it was not as blatant as Peter's betrayal. Maybe it's more like the people of Jerusalem. We act out of ignorance, not even thinking about or fully understanding how our actions are slap in the face of Jesus and his sacrifice. Jesus' heart is still for you. Get this. He's not angry toward you. He loves you. And he longs for your relationship with him to be made right. It's like the father in the story of the prodigal son. Surely he was hurt by the selfishness of his son. But he eagerly awaited the return of the wayward son. Jesus weeps over our foolishness. And he longs for our return to him. I ask the question, who is this man? The scriptures declare that he is the son of David, which is simply another way of saying he is the Messiah. He is all-powerful. He is wiser than anything we could ever imagine. But he is also the one who loves us more than we will ever deserve it's not as if you can somehow become more deserving of his grace or his love. The truth is, no matter what you do, you will never deserve that kind of love. But he offers it to you. It's just who he is. I ask you now, who is this man to you? I'm not talking about in theology. I'm not talking about even what we read in the scripture, although the answer ought to line up with what we read in the scripture. I'm asking the question, who is this man to you? For me, he is the restorer of my soul, especially in times of brokenness. I remember many years ago when my wife and I lost a child. Talk about brokenness. Someone that you love, someone that you care about has been taken and you feel so broken. He is the restorer of my soul. He's the one who took my brokenness and he made me whole. And today I don't stand up here a broken man. Is there still sorrow that someone you love was taken? Absolutely. But I am whole today because of what Jesus Christ did for me. He is the restorer of my soul, especially in times of brokenness. He is the gracious redeemer during my moments of greatest failure. Again, I don't believe that I'm the only one who can attest to that. He is the one who holds me accountable expecting me to live up to a higher standard. Not to live up to your standard, but to live up to a much higher standard in him. And he is the one who sent his spirit to dwell in me that would enable me to live up to that higher standard. 
Because the truth is I couldn't do it on my own, but he made a way for me to do it. And he is the one who is there to make up for the difference when I fail as a husband and as a father. He is the one who has shown me grace over and over again. And I ask you this morning, who is this man to you? I know what he wants to be. He wants to be your savior and your friend. The question is, will you allow him to fulfill that role? I'm going to ask everyone, if you would, to bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we celebrate you. We begin with that video that was shown of our children declaring what this ministry is all about and what our hope is all about. For anyone who believes in you, Lord, you love us so much that you have made eternal life possible for us. Father, I thank you today for the forgiveness of sins that has been promised to those who will believe in you. I thank you today that as we talk about who you are, that each one of us has a story where we are enabled to recognize you in a different way. Some of us have great similarities to our stories. Lord, we have seen you as the Redeemer, the one who paid the price for our sins. We have seen you as an agent of grace, continually forgiving us and offering us the opportunity at a second and a third and a fourth chance over and over and over again. Father, we come before you today so thankful that we cannot simply define you as just one thing, for you are many things to many people. But you are the Messiah. We're grateful to know that there is one God and it is you. That you reveal yourself in many ways to us, but you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that does not change. Thank you today that we know what is constant and what is real, and it is you. The God of heaven, but also the God of your people. Father, I pray today that if there's one individual in here that does not know the love that you have available to them, that right now you would introduce yourself to them. Father, too many times we have fallen short. It's almost as if we expect you to be ready to discipline us as if you were some mean taskmaster waiting for us with your whip ready to discipline the body of Christ. And we know that you, dis- you do discipline those whom you love. But the fact is you do it out of love and you desire for us to come running back to you. So right now, Father, I pray that you would draw us near to you not for discipline, but with an embrace. Father, where sin has reigned in our lives, I pray that right now you would set us free, 
I pray that you would give us the opportunity to be made new, to be transformed into your likeness, and that every person in this room, every person that is watching online would know the love of a holy God in a personal way today. Father, I thank you that you did that for me. Lord, I pray that you would just reveal yourself to every person in this room. You tell us, according to the prophet Jeremiah, that if we will seek you with all of our hearts, then we will find you. And my prayer today is that these people would seek you with all of their hearts and that they would find you in accordance with your word. With every head bowed and I close this morning, perhaps there's someone in here today who does not know the love of Jesus Christ, but you would like to know the love of Jesus Christ. I want to be able to pray for you. I'm going to ask you, if you would, if that's you, sometimes we have people come to the altar, sometimes I have you raise your hand, we're going to meet in the middle of the day. I'm going to ask you, if you would, just stand right where you are. If that's you, I want to be able to pray specifically for you, that God would reveal his love to you right now. Father, I thank you for your love that is extended to us. I pray that every person in here knows that in a personal way. I pray that this message would continue to ring in our hearts long after we walk out of the doors of this church. And when we fail, when we are broken, when we have to deal with the hardship of this world, remind us of your love that is available to us. Thank you again for the grace you've given. Now be honored in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is such a blessing to have each of you with us today. And obviously we are going to continue with this Easter season talking about the gift of love that Jesus offers to us as we encounter him personally. Uh, over the next several weeks, we encourage you, invite others to come be a part of this. We are here to experience him. You can experience him elsewhere. I get that. But I believe that God has been meeting with us and he's doing great things. Thank you for coming and being a part of that today. Go in peace. By the way, there's, uh, uh, there'll be people taking up the offering as you leave today. Thank you and go in peace.